Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I talk with my friend, Dr. Michael Toll, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Mount St. Mary's University. Dr. Toll has been teaching at Mount St. Mary's since 1991. He received his bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. He has held the rank of full professor since 2004. Dr. Toll teaches introductory and advanced courses in American politics, including parties and elections, the American presidency, congressional politics, and the Supreme Court and constitutional law. His primary scholarly focus is on American national politics, especially American political institutions. In this episode, Dr. Toll and I discuss this moment of transition from one presidential administration to the next. The end of the Trump administration, including the Capitol insurrection and the president's second impeachment, and the beginning of the Biden administration, including where our parties, our politics, and our country might be heading next. Our conversation was recorded on January 16th. Hello, Dr. Toll. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. What an exciting year we've had already. Yes. What an exciting moment to be speaking about politics. It's crazy. I just keep thinking, um, this is unreal. This is unreal. Is this real? We're we're clearly I mean I'm I'm tired of the phrase inflection point everyone keeps using it so I'm trying to think of some other phrase but we're we're definitely at let's use the word juncture we're definitely at a juncture um, and not quite sure where this is all going to go but we're at a critical point clearly right so we've got you on the podcast today to talk about that juncture point to talk about the end of the trump administration the beginning of the biden administration and this in between that is far more exciting than anybody would have hoped and most people would have expected so i'm first of all curious as to your reaction about the attack on the capitol on january 6th and how you think it and President Trump's subsequent second impeachment <laughs> might have changed things going forward. Well, I mean, first I'll say, you know, horrified by what happened. Um, sadly, I'm not surprised. I, mm. I looked to, I actually sent an email the day before to uh, another faculty member in my department um, and said, when, what day do you think the violence will start? Mm. Uh, and actually, even that morning was uh, corresponding with someone saying, I, you know, I feel like there's going to be some shooting today. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm in a slightly different, most people were shocked and I wish I was more shocked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was shocking to see the images. But if you tell people for weeks and weeks and weeks that, um, you know, that, that democracy has been stolen, and that you've lost your country, um, you know, a, a certain group is going to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they saw it as a revolutionary moment. Um, so, you know, and, and then that that absurd speech that President Trump gave and, you know, lie, even then lied to them, by the way, I'll, I'll be at the other end of the Capitol with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we need to go down there. I mean, it, 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 they were incited, which gets us to the impeachment. Um, it, 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 it clearly, it was sort of the culmination of how he's approached his presidency, unfortunately. Um, at least that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, I think so too. I, I wouldn't say that I was exactly expecting what happened. I was, I was shocked. I, for me, I had more of just like a generalized anxiety. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Running up to the sixth, I just was anxious and, you know, looking at the news every so often and just thinking what's going on, what's going to happen. And I, I was still shocked. That was more than I expected. I did. I, I thought it was, I I wasn't going to be surprised if there was some sort of violence, but. 
actually attacking the Capitol. That yeah, I found that shocking. Well, I I'll tell you I what I have been shocked by is as the days have gone by, the story has actually gotten worse. Yeah, like you yeah. know, the footage became worse. The the, right. the extent to which a lot of people had planned it. I guess what I wasn't shocked was that there was an angry mob. Um, but in the days since then, when I've looked and realized, you know, there were some people who went there with plans. Um, and, and, and it, it looks like there was some degree of coordination among some groups. I don't know how conspiratorial it was, but that's a little shocking. And it, it tells us that, you know, these connections run deep among a lot of people who who feel a very high sense of grievance. Right. While we're on that point, let me ask you, yeah. um, how dangerous do you think this moment continues to be? Like, especially I'm thinking of, you know, the concerns in the state capitals. You know, a, a mob in Washington, D.C. is one thing, but a mob in 50 states is a, is another thing. Yeah. That, boy, that's a, that's a great question. And I I, you know, it's hard to know, you know, I, the, the historical example I keep thinking of is 1968, where things just continued to break down, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Tet Offensive, the uh, Johnson's withdrawal, the assassination of King, the um, riots within the cities, and things got worse and worse and worse. And, um, you know, w- the problem is that every time something happens, a new group feels aggrieved. Um, mm-hmm. you know, be it police or protesters or urban dwellers, you know, it, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful that, that the extent of the security will give everyone a chance, you know, what to breathe. Um, when once, uh, once, uh, Biden is president, and, you know, we've had a, if we can get to, you know, 30 days without, without any sort of violence. And I, I doubt that Joe Biden will be tweeting every day to try to, you, it's going to be a very, very different presidency. Yeah. And I'm hoping it will give people a chance to calm down. But I, I think that it, you know, we'll know in about 30 days, whether, whether things have quieted down. Uh, that, yeah. Yeah, I'm still I've, I'm feeling that uh, same sort of vague sense of anxiety for this week as I was for the sixth. So I'll, I'll feel it, better once we get past it even. It's heartbreaking to see the Capitol surrounded by so much fencing. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think for coronavirus reasons, I guess it's good that we didn't have the, you know, the, the huge crowds. But I, I've been to a few inaugurations. I went to college in Washington. I went to an inaugural, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're usually kind of a fun, celebratory, you know, just pomp. And, we don't have a lot of pomp and circumstance in the United States. And it's a, a moment of it. And it's not a, you know, it's it's a very light day in a lot of ways. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's a ceremony. It's a, you know, the closest we have to an uh, inaugural uh, coronation. You know, we have a parade. Um, and it just kills me that it's been, that this is now what we've come to. Yeah. Um, and it's always good to see the previous presidents, yes. the the person who lost. It's always good to see them all up there together saying, right. essentially, we may disagree, but we move forward, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton had that. a lunch uh, in the uh, in the Capitol with President Trump after, you know, I mean, that's, and I remember it because I remember he thanked her for being there. And I was at that point hopeful that, you know, maybe he would act presidential. I, 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 the one, the one thing that I have learned that I'm most wrong about, <laughs> or at least maybe it's, but I've always thought that, you know, the office, the, the office transforms the person in it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that Trump would, um, live up to the role that is to say, to take on certain, a, a certain persona and, and, and live, and, and he immediately didn't. And, uh, that, that that was unfortunate. Yeah, I didn't actually think he would um, <laughs> rise to the occasion. <laughs> well, I, maybe I should say I, I hoped, uh, yeah. you know, because so many people have in the past. There have been people who were clearly just not ready for the job, and yet mm-hmm. they somehow managed to behave in a way 
you know, obviously we can talk about all sorts of, but, but overall they behaved as a president, at least in their public persona, right? We've, we've learned all sorts yeah. of private things, but in their public right. persona, they, they, they did what they had to do. They knew the role. They right. knew the role. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I shouldn't say I was entirely without hope. I was hoping to be wrong. <laughs> I was like yeah. hoping to be pleasantly surprised. Um, but I just, I just felt like he had been really clear about who he was and that's who he was. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So what about this impeachment? What do oh, you think? <laughs> what, what do you, what do you think this is going to do to everything? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great. You know, I I I have thought over and over again if if I if I was in the the house, you know, what would I have done? And I, um, I think impeaching him was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And once the and in fact, to, to be honest, so much so that I'm shocked at the number of people who did not vote for impeachment. You know, I keep thinking, gee, if at my office someone was murdered outside my office when an, when a mob went through and I had to hide under my desk and that, you know, but then there was a faculty meeting and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to vote to say no, it's all fine. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that kind of made me think, well, what, what more would you want? And I realize there's all sorts of partisanship in it, but it did strike me that, boy, here's a moment when what happened was so obviously inappropriate that you know it, it, it's clearly an impeachable offense and i'm puzzled that that didn't happen having said that i i wish that we could have done all sorts of things so that we weren't in this um nebulous constitutional moment um i'm i'm not completely yeah. certain that it's constitutional to have a trial once he's you know, right. out of office right um i'm I, i'm i'm hoping that after some time has passed, we will have discovered that the reason the vice president didn't try to invoke the 25th Amendment is there weren't enough cabinet officials to go with it, like that he knows something that we don't. Mm. But there were other constitutional options. One was to just simply remove him at that point. You know, and there even is this this, you know, forgotten clause of the 14th Amendment, um, you know, it, it, I there's many ways to read it, but one is that, you know, Congress could simply pass by majority vote saying that um, he committed insurrection and then he's ineligible for office. But, you know, they went the impeachment route. Um, I, I would have been very hard pressed to vote no. I think I would have had to vote yes because it's so clearly impeachable. But it leaves us at a weird spot now because I don't know what happens next. Right. Yeah. My first reaction was, well, if you're going to go forward with impeachment, you've got to just jump right into a Senate trial and just do it right away before he leaves. Because, yeah, it seems so strange to be able to have a Senate trial after he's out of office. Yeah, um, I, I hate the distraction at the start of a new administration. Yeah. Yeah. The The advantage to waiting, though, which I started to understand over the course of a few days, is that um, the point that you made a little while ago, which is that we are learning more and more about the attack than we knew at first. And the advantage to doing like a full Senate trial later might be that you could actually present evidence about exactly what happened in the attack. And um, I don't know, maybe maybe the more senators realize just how close, <laughs> yeah. just how close it was might make them more willing to go for it. I don't know. Yeah. And the um, Republicans in the Senate, boy, they're going to be in a tough, I, I mean, I, yeah. they, they shouldn't be in a tough spot, but I also recognize political realities. Um, and especially as, you know, memories fade a little bit and the panic is gone. Um, but, but the, the Republican party of course is going to have a huge problem. And it's it, it, the, the first point that they might have to face with that problem might be what to do about this trial. Right. Right, they need to figure out where they're gonna, where they're gonna put their weight, which side they're gonna come down on, and that's, yeah, that's gonna be hard for some members. Uh, it is, and I, I, I just saw on the news today. Um, uh, um, <laughs> of course, the name just popped out of my head. Um, the senator from Kentucky, the libertarian. Uh, Rand Paul. Thank you, thank yeah. you, Rand Paul. <laughs> um, you know why does that have to happen when we're recording? Um, yeah. <laughs> I saw a Rand Paul, you know, made a statement that if they vote to convict, 
that, you know, a third of the Republican Party will leave or something like that. And I think he means, you know, in the Congress. But I there there are already probably two Republican parties and you know, and what one has been maybe guilty of being a little too silent, but they've been stuck in a political position. Um, and, and there might be going forward, there might be two Democratic parties too. But um, yeah. they're they're in a weird, they're in a spot where they're gonna have they're gonna have to make a decision about themselves that's gonna define them going forward. I'm not claiming it's easy politically, but I think they're they're in a they're in a difficult spot. Yeah. And I mean, and the fact is too, if they, if they vote not to convict, they could also lose a third. <laughs> it might just right. be a quieter third, a third that, uh, helps support them financially. Yeah. Um, and a third that votes. So, I mean, they might not be as vocal, you know, in social media and stuff, but that doesn't mean no, they're, they, you know, they're not have... consequential. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does. yes, exactly. And I, it's anecdotal I, and, yeah. and not, but I, I know many guys my age who were not particularly political, but just sort of, you know, generally Republican who aren't anymore. And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know, you know, right now the, the Republican Party as is, is not going to get them back. So, mm-hmm. right. Um, you know, if they if they keep going down that path, they have an even even less likelihood. Yeah. Yeah. But before the sixth, before mm-hmm. that happened, what sort of a, a role did you see for Trump moving forward? Like, did you see a much bigger role than you see for him now? Or do you think it's comparable? Oh, Yes, I did see a bigger role, although my my guess was that my guess was that despite him making noises about running in 2024, that that the party or at least the the public would move on because they always do. And, you know, he's, you know, he's making noises like he was making noises like he was still going to be involved in politics and probably he will. But you know, former presidents are never at the middle of the action. Now that that's partly been because they have the temperament to step back and he doesn't. Um, but my, I kind of expected that, um, other, other people would fill in the void fairly quickly, despite, despite his noises. And really why would the Republicans establishment certainly want to nominate him again? I mean, he didn't win the popular vote either time. His approval rating was never above right. 50%. He, you know, he lost states, you know, that he just shouldn't have lost in Arizona. Yeah. I mean, that that despite the public support for him up until that point or the willingness to let him carry on with his lawsuits and what have you, once that was all done, it was clear they didn't really the, the establishment in the party doesn't want to deal with him anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so then there's the group that that's just going to try to stay attached to his base for political reasons. But there's many of the Republicans don't really, I don't want to say they don't need that base, but that base isn't going to have a choice to go somewhere else. If Trump went quietly into the night, you know, now I don't know what happens now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt like before this happened, I felt like Trump would continue to be very powerful in the party. And I didn't think he would necessarily run again in 2024, but I thought he would hold out the possibility long enough to really kind of screw up the Republican primary for 2024. I, I thought the same thing because I thought, you know, he, he never really wanted to be president in the first place and his ego may have forced him to run in 2024. But I think what what would have been he would have been a big influence in the party yeah um but i wasn't really and even now i'm not really expecting him to run 2024 right yeah and i i feel like now um i mean i feel like it was maybe you know not with his not with his core supporters obviously but i think for the rest of the country what just happened is like such a shock to the system that i think he's weakened to a degree where the establishment part of the party is having to really wrestle with if if we're going to split from him like this is the moment like yeah, right. if you're going to split from trump at any moment you would think the insurrection at the capitol would be that so i mean i wouldn't be surprised if you have 
some institutionalists who are saying like, guys, if we're going to, if we're going to cut the ties, we've got to do it now. <laughs> you know? I, well, I think, and I think that one reason maybe 17 Republicans would go along with the Democrats is by actually, because the only thing they can do is prevent him from running again. Right, 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 and right. Those, yeah. you know, every senator thinks they're going to be a president someday. And so, you know, um, maybe to some of them, it just takes his, takes him out of the equation. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, I, yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. I'm thinking for these guys who want to compete even for his base, yeah. I mean, I, it doesn't do them a lot of favors if he's still potentially, you know, going to be running. <laughs> yeah, right. So you would think it's in their best. I mean, not that we're going to see Cruz or Hawley vote to convict, but you would think politically it would be in their best interest for him to no longer be eligible to run. And here's a little interesting tidbit. Um, <laughs> the vote in the Senate, there's nothing that says it has to be um, a, a recorded vote. Really? No, no, there isn't. And, you know, they could. Uh, now, I don't know whether they would dare do a non-recorded vote, but, you know, it, I could see a Democrat trying to call for a you know, a paper ballot. And then every one of them can say, oh, no, I voted not to convict. And, you know, Interesting. Turns out, you know, See, I, I just was hearing on the news this morning, someone saying, um, oh, yeah, if it were a secret ballot, he'd be convicted easily. Yeah, and um, I think I am fairly certain that I'll, I'll, you know, I can, I can get back to you. I realize it doesn't get any, do any good here, but I am fairly certain that there is a way in Senate procedure to do it. Well, and who knows, I might even be one of those things where they just, in in normal circumstances, they wouldn't even consider that as an option, but who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, certainly not normal circumstances. Right. Yeah. So um, we talked about what might be coming for, well, I, I guess I want to talk a little bit more about what might be coming for the Republican Party. Like, you know, we talked about the different elements of the party do you have any hunches? Like, could we really see like an actual split in the party? Like, um, I know there's been a little bit of chatter from the Trump side of things that if the establishment figures essentially are disloyal to Trump, then they're just going to go ahead and start their own party. Like, could that happen? Could we see more of the moderate types say, I've had enough, we're starting something new? Um, or... Is, you know, are we just going to have turmoil forever? <laughs> you know, my, my guess is that we will um, probably more have turmoil forever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the problem the problem in the U.S. is that um, it's almost impossible to operate uh, uh, with more than two parties. Yeah. And there's all sorts of reasons, you know, you can go back to your political science days, and a lot of it has to do with the way we run elections. Right. But there's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of, of reasons why, um, you know, it, it, you can't really organize the Congress uh, that well, and it would make it, it the the only way that I see it happening is if there, and it, it's not going to happen right now with the Democrats, is if there was somehow a simultaneous split in the Democrats, such right. as there was some sort of weird centrist coalition. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could even potentially see a populist coalition. <laughs> I mean, could. that's true. I mean, what if you ended up with essentially a populist coalition made of pe populist people from both sides and um and a more institutional coalition? Yeah, you 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 it, you could. I mean, at the, they're at the moment they don't line up on policies, but mm -hmm. but who knows. But yeah, I my guess is we're just going to continue to see a mess. And, you know, the, the yeah. closest analogy probably that we can come up with is the Democratic Party between uh, 19, say, 20 and uh, 1970, which is you had these Southern Democrats who were nothing like the rest of the Democrats. And they prevented the Democrats from doing some. Well, they prevented them from doing some things they needed to do, like civil rights. Um, and prevented the Democrats from having some of their policy preferences, but there was always this sort of way that they would work together with occasional, you know, in 1948, 1968, you know, uh, uh, presidential candidates that say, no, I'm not going to be part of this and, you know, go off on their own. 
Um, that that seems to me to be more likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a scenario is that you're going to have some group of them that will become known by some name, you know, something akin to the Freedom Caucus, um, and then others who will tolerate them to the degree that they have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder how much, like, um, how much of a show of unity you'll get in the Republican Party, because I feel like before Trump, um, you know, I mean, I know Reagan, didn't he have that commandment, you shall never speak ill of other Republicans, something right. like that. Yeah, that's it. But, yeah. but that but that didn't really happen. I mean, like even, you know, McCain and Romney, even though they were presidential nominees, they were still pretty well criticized in more conservative parts of the party. Yes. And um, I feel like there's always been before Trump, public Republicans would still like be critical of one another. And then when you had Trump come in, suddenly everybody had to toe the line. And I wonder what it will be like with him not in the presidency. Like, will they still feel like they need to toe the line or will they go back to the situation where there can be some measure of disagreement within the party? I don't know. I don't know either. I think you're, I mean, I think that's, that's the question and I don't, I don't really have a good answer for it. Yeah. What about the Democratic Party? What do you see? What do you see cooking in that <laughs> that side? Well, you know, in the short run, um, you know, probably what we'll see is for a little while, Biden will have, you know, relatively high approval. And by relatively, I mean, by recent standards, not. And um, he'll, you know, probably have a few successes in, in terms of getting the vaccine out and whatnot. And he'll he'll plot along um and you're not going to see many breaks in the democratic party at the moment i mean but you know the one of the things that was that was almost amusing to me i saw it more on social media than other places but i was amused um by the number of things i would read of people saying you know well i'm not going to vote for biden and you know, in, in the United States, it makes me laugh. It's like, oh, I see. You know, and, and they're saying this because they're so far to the left. Right, right, like, oh, right. Oh, okay, so you want Trump then. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure, you're not going to vote for him. Like, you know, what, yeah. you, you don't yeah. really have a choice. Yeah. Um, and in the short run, um, and I would guess maybe up until around the midterms um, in 2022, the, the Democrats will stay together. Um in some sort of coalition, but, you know, there, there's going to be some uncomfortable problem. You know, there's, there is, um, there's an up and coming group in the Republican, in the Democratic party that's not happy with the selection of a, you know, a 70 or eight year old. Right. Right. Um, and you know, this isn't new. None of this is new in politics Mm -hmm. for either party, but, but, uh, they could, there could be, a split there. And some of this might really be the challenge for, I think, Biden and Pelosi, uh, maybe for Schumer, which is, can you start to create um, bridges to another generation of Democrats uh, without going, you know, off, off, off the left side of the party, such a way that they, that they lose big in 2022. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. I mean, they're, they're very old now, the leaders in the party and, and that's, that's got to change and time will change that anyway. Um, but, but I think they would be wise to say that there's going to be some new changes and, you know, let's try to, to manage this change, you know, Mm -hmm. in ways that we think is going to be healthier for, for democracy. Um, because otherwise they're going to they're going to face their own sort of populist revolt in the Democratic Party that's going to be too far left to get elected. Yeah, I've been kind of wondering if that's what they're doing regarding environmental policy. I mean, I keep hearing this this mantra like um, everything is going to be influenced by our concern for the environment, and um, it's going to color everything. And I keep thinking like. Well, that's probably their way to like, you know, give a gesture toward the left, but also like holding it close to the vest. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's relatively safe too, right? Yeah. I mean, nobody. I mean, I know there's some controversy about global warming and stuff, but nobody's gonna 
get all upset about uh, trying to be more environmentally strict. Oh, I, I shouldn't say nobody. It, it's not the type of thing. But not the major constituencies of, of the Democratic Party. Right. And it's not right. you know, outside of industrialists or what have you. It's not the right. sort of thing that can, that's going to, yeah. Even, even labor unions now, I think, are more used to concerns in the Democratic Party about, about environmental. Um, so, yeah, I think that could be one of the places we'll see it. Yeah. I th- I think that as long as we stay in this moment of crisis, like between the pandemic and the political situation with Trump, I think you'll see the Democratic Party hold it pretty well together. Um, I think as things start to improve with the pandemic and if Trump is less visible, then I think you'll see more uh, overt <laughs> disagreement within the party. I mean, there's nothing like a common enemy, right, to keep you together. Well, that's yeah, that's true, and we are, we, and certainly there's there's enough uh, distractions at the moment. Yeah, um, and I think you're right. I think in the for at least a year and mm-hmm. maybe two, the Democrats will will form some sort of alliance, and you know there probably are some policy types of things that they could start to work on that would satisfy the left of the party. You know, you know. I'm not advocating it, but, you know, you could imagine forming a coalition around looking more closely into ideas like universal basic income, mm-hmm. which, you know, it does, it, it, it could very strongly appeal to the left, but you can also um, package it in a way that it's uh, more, um, you know, that, that it's, that it's a, a way of like doing things more efficiently without a lot of mm-hmm. government involvement. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are things like that you could do that might keep the Democrats, uh, you know, mm-hmm. give give the left something that keeps them with the party. Yeah, I um, I keep thinking it's there's got to be a great deal of pressure on Biden to produce for this period, for this you know year or whatever it is this this initial period of his presidency, where the Democrats are pretty well united. And the Republicans possibly have their tail between their legs um, because of what happened on the 6th. I feel like there's got to be this real pressure on Biden to produce, to like push stuff through, show that he can get things done so that he can have something to show for this period mm-hmm. for for that point at which um, the Democratic Party is feeling comfortable enough to criticize itself and possibly the republicans are bouncing back yeah i think that's you know the the virus gives uh him an opportunity to display competence right um and and lack of chaos i mean right we've been just so governed by chaos for four years that there the there's it's possible that this could be done in a way that brings a little bit of calm yeah so many people are just like I, I don't want to have to care about politics anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have to open my newspaper or look at my phone with dread every morning and wonder what might have happened. <laughs> I, um, a governor Hickenlooper, when he was in the primaries, I, I thought one of the funnier things he said was one of his main promises was that if they elect, if you elect me president, you won't have to think about me for three weeks at a time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought, you know, it's like, well, you almost just got my vote on that. Yeah. You know, perfect. Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. Go do your job. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, so might we see, do you think, a, a return to the center in, in all of this? Like, are we going to see, um, especially in the Senate, which is so closely divided, uh, Senator Manchin, Romney, Collins, et cetera, as like the new power center of the Senate and maybe even American national politics in general? You know, in the short run, I think so. I mean, certainly, you know, Murkowski and Manchin and some of those have their, they're certainly going to be the power, the, 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 the power brokers in the Senate. Like they're very important right now. But I think that, you know, if you and I, 10 years from now, listen back on this, my guess is that whatever we are imagining is the center right now is probably going to be redefined. Yeah, um, sure. by, which, by which I mean, I think, I think it's possible that we're going to see so much change 
in the parties in the next two years that I'm not even sure what that new center is going to be. Yeah. It's going to be a new establishment of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I keep thinking, you know, of the phrase of like every action has a reaction mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, f- for the past four years, we've been paying a lot of attention to like the far right and, and also the far left. Um, and that I, I wonder if, if with all the events that have just happened over the past few months with the election and the sixth and all that, if the politicians sort of say like, uh, okay, we've had that, we are going <laughs> to, we're going to react to that by shooting down the middle and being really boring. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like they might do that for a little while. It probably won't last, but if I were Romney or Manchin or something, I would be like, this is my chance. Like, this is my chance to have a lot of influence and I'm going to take it, <laughs> you know? Yes. And, you know, and there's a couple of things they could do. You could take a couple of things that we've never quite gotten right in the U.S. Healthcare, immigration, um, you could, uh, infrastructure. There's probably a few small things in mm-hmm. tax code that maybe you know, they could come up as sort of, you know, the common sense alliance mm-hmm. um, and come up with some things that make sense, um, whether they can pull enough with them. But I think you're right. This could be a golden opportunity for them. Yeah. I mean, didn't they didn't they say something like that, like the common sense caucus or something? There was some phrase of like a small group of people. But if they could have like 10 moderates who just said, look, we're here and we know you need us and... <laughs> we're yeah. going to have an influence. I think they could have quite a bit of influence. I, I think so too. Yeah. And it'll, it'll annoy the living daylights out of, out of, you know, certain senators. Yeah. But if you want to get anything done, then you're going to have to go through them. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and you, what you would hope though, is that you, too often what happens in the Senate is it's the place where everything stops. Yeah. But the opportunity would be them to be the place where things get done. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's it's often tempting to politicians to be like the big power brokers oh, and yeah. <laughs> they have the opportunities that so they may well take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um what do you I'm not sure how much you know about it, but what do you think Biden's cabinet picks so far and policy annou- announcements like what do they tell us about the direction in which he plans to head. You know, for the most part, they seem to be fairly establishment mm-hmm. figures. Now, I know there's a few of them that uh, uh, that you know that that there will be some objection to um, in the Senate. Mm-hmm. But by and large, if if any if he's going to face any criticism, it's going to be because he's kind of picked you know establishment figures. Mm-hmm. But you know, even said. Um, you know, you think of someone like maybe Janet Yellen or who who have enough background that they they might be able to appease, um, uh, you know, some of the, the, the more liberal wing of the party. I, I, I will be honest, I don't know a whole lot about the various people. I do know that a few picks have been clearly more designed. Um, I think the labor secretary is one and a few others clearly more designed. Uh, yeah, I think he's what a he's been like a union leader, right? Yes. Marty Walsh, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know those sorts of things. I think it, it, it certainly will. The Democrats will see that as you know a, a sign of relief or even you know fresh air after Trump. Um, so I think right, you know, and cabinets are often more symbolic, especially in these days when when so much is actually run by the White House staff and not the cabinet. Mm-hmm. We start presidencies with so much attention to the cabinet, and then they're often they're often not that important. Um, uh, but but what we've seen, I think, so far is he he seems to have prioritized uh, competence over ideology, um, and you know, so so to that extent, it's sort of that you know the old standard bearers in the party. With a few people that that probably are going to you know be, have more uh, have a, a appeal to others in the party that may not have supported him, um, mm-hmm. but you know mm-hmm. <laughs> presidents have often started with great fanfare. I think Richard Nixon went on national television to uh, you know announce his cabinet and introduce him to the country. You know, in nineteen sixty whatever eight nine, it must have been um, and. 
you know, and then proceeded to operate everything out of the White House. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, um, yeah. we'll, we, we'll see. Well, that brings me back. That reminds me of the first time that you came on my podcast, which was to discuss executive power. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you have Do you have any ideas about what you what you expect from a Biden administration as far as as far as this trend toward centralizing power in the executive? Do you think it's just going to continue it, or do you think it might push back a little bit? I boy, you know what I would love to see is what would defy human nature. What I would love to see is someone's going to step back and I'm not going to try to do everything by Mm -hmm. executive Mm -hmm. order. And well, well, having the house and the Senate might give him a chance to, to cooperate more with with Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, at the same time, it is the more we've created executive power, the more a new president coming in is going to be tempted to say, well, you know, you let Trump do it. So now I'm going to do this, this and this. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's gone back and forth with, you know, first with signing statements with uh, Bush and more executive orders with Obama and then Trump going crazy on executive orders and even, you know, appointments. We talked about inspectors general. Um, we, <laughs> I, I, I guess I imagine that there, Biden will be on under a lot of pressure to act unilaterally. Um, but, you know, his career was in the Congress and maybe, maybe we could see more cooperation with Congress um, just given Biden's nature. But I don't know how long it will last. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think, you know, probably... Probably you're right. It's not in human nature to give up power and the executive will continue to try to grasp more of it. Um, But I think two things call that into question. One is that I think it's just become so like ingrained in us now that Congress doesn't do anything that I think you're going to see now a bunch of people like, all right, well, at least on the Democratic side. All right. Well, we've now got all three we need to show that we can actually achieve something. So I think there might be more of an effort to try to, um, to try to produce, you know, and especially, like I said before, like in the first year or so. Um, so I think that there might be more incentive now for Congress to try to, to try to show that they can actually do something. <laughs> I, you know, I hope so, you know, but, but, but there's also, you know, there's a flip side of this that sometimes Congress doesn't want to do anything because, because then they have to face their voters about what they did. So right. if they can just say, well, no, everything's out of the White House. And, oh, we, you know, they can almost wash their hands of it. And, you know, we'll have once again a unilateral immigration policy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the first place I'll look, by the way, on this question is, you uh, know, I, okay. I know that, um, it, you know, I know that that Biden has said things that will undo some of what, uh, Trump did to undo the deferred action question. Um, will he attempt to make Congress responsible for a sensible immigration policy, or is he just going to, you know, uh, issue a whole bunch of executive orders? My fear is it'll be a bunch of executive orders. But mm-hmm. I think that's—I'll tell you what—I'll—I'll I'll look to that one first. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is just what you referenced regarding Biden's own senatorial experience. I mean, I mentioned this in my last episode, but for years, not that I think Congress is especially great or anything, but for years, I have been wanting to see a president who had like a depth of congressional experience just because when you're ha- when you're in a larger body like that, you you have to work together. Like if you don't work with other people, you don't get things done. It's not like an executive where you can sign a statement. Like you you just have to. You have to be part of the push and pull. And I I felt like that was like an important skill set for the president to have. And I mean, going back to like when Obama was nominated, I thought if for no, I thought he was a bad choice simply because he was so inexperienced in the Senate. I mean, he'd only been there for four years. And I just thought, well, he hasn't, he hasn't been around enough. He hasn't had to do the give and take very much. And as much as he says he wants to work with everybody, I don't know if 
<laughs> I don't know if he really can, you know, and I don't, I don't think he did. And, um, and then, and then even like in the 2016 primary, I, for a lot of reasons, I liked Marco Rubio, but I also thought that he was too young and inexperienced with like, just like the give and take that's necessary in politics. So, um, I mean, it hasn't been since like Ford that we've had a president that like came of age in Congress. Right. Um, I mean, we yeah, had a bunch of governors. I mean, mostly governors. I mean, George H.W. Bush served in Congress, but not for very long. Lyndon Johnson is the right. best. But, you know, boy, sure. they're, they are such different characters. Yeah. I mean, they are such different characters. But it was clearly Johnson's experience in the Senate. Um, Johnson always understood what motivated members of Congress and what they were thinking. And uh, I think that's why he did so much with Congress. Biden is such, their, their personalities could not be more different. So, yeah. but, but they do share that. Mm -hmm. They do share that experience. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean that congressional experience is what makes for a good president. I mm -hmm. just think we are overdue for that. And yeah, yes. we like I, need, I yeah. we need an injection of, of somebody who knows to, how to actually do the work of politics. <laughs> Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I and, and tired of getting it all done at, by executive action. Yeah. 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 I think I, I, I think you're right. Um, of course, you know, the, <laughs> the Congress has not behaved in such a way. Yeah. It gives me great hope <laughs> that they will, you know, that they will rise to the occasion. But Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel sort of funny right now about the future of American politics because like I'm I'm like 90 percent. Um, focused on what a tragedy this is, <laughs> like ninety percent thinking, oh, the world is falling apart. But I'm also like ten percent hopeful <laughs> because I see these like these you know little bits, like I said about you know having somebody with congressional like a depth of congressional experience and a few little things like that, or or the the potential power of the center, like a few things like that, made me think. Well, actually, there might be some things that turn turn this around. Uh, for the most part, it's like, oh, everything's so horrible. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, and I don't know that, you know, I, it's hard to say. At least in his public persona, uh, Biden seems to be a more decent man. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's worth a little bit to me. I mean, yeah. it's not going to solve everything, but it, it might help. It might help at least calm a lot of people in the public. Right. And and somebody and part of what I mean too with that congressional experience is like you need to have somebody who can form relationships with people. Yes. And like those relationships are not going to be perfect and you disagree with people and just because you have a relationship with somebody doesn't mean you're gonna get something done together. But you at least have a foundation to to potentially try to 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 get something done or to disagree with goodwill, you know? Yeah. But when you're not someone who can form decent relationships with other people, like you don't have that foundation. You don't have anything to work with. And so you're going to be screwed, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So at least you have a chance if yeah. you're somebody who can like have decent relationships with other people. So a real yeah. funny note on that. I know uh, it, it, probably over time, but the, but it, at some other point, look, think about what happened when members of Congress stopped living in Washington, um, which is really something that happened in the 70s and 80s. Um, mm -hmm. They made a decision. And so they go in on Tuesday at noon and they leave you know, late Thursday night. They used to move their families to Washington, settle. And, and then there was a criticism. Well, they, they're no right. longer home. But right. I think, you know, what we lost was that they they knew each other and it right. will affect how you're going to talk about things when yeah. you have to deal with someone on a more regular basis and on a personal level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, I don't have any congressional experience, but having been around the Maryland legislature, you know, it's it's interesting sometimes to watch the relationships between these people. You know, sometimes yeah. you see some friendships between people that you would not expect. Um, sort of like, you know, joking around or, you know, they know, they know who they can trust and who they can't. <laughs> yes, right. They know um, who's acting in goodwill and who's not. <laughs> yeah. 
And those things don't necessarily um, align with with your party, you know. So it's 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 interesting to see how they interact behind um, behind the public, behind what's seen publicly. It is, so. and there's some there's some great stories on all that too. Yeah, the things we find out about later. Yeah, 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 yep. Oh, well, well, it is going to be fascinating to watch. Yes, it will. <laughs> this, this is a great time to be a political science professor, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it, it, it I, I am not without anything to talk about. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great time to be in a political science professor or a journalist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was thank really you for interesting. Having me again. It's been and fun. I um, it's going to be so interesting to see what happens. Yes, it will. <laughs> Yes, it will. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. All right, bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Michael Toll. If you'd like to hear another, go back to episode number 10, in which Dr. Toll and I discussed the concept of executive power. Next week, we'll return to our series on Reconstruction with the second installment of my conversation with historian D.D. Miller. The episode will focus on the topic of criminal justice, the legacy that Reconstruction-era black codes and policies of imprisonment and forced labor have left in American society right down to the modern day. I hope you come back to learn about that important element in American history and consider how it impacts the policies and politics of today. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll share it and leave a rating or review so others can find it. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.